listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing Arya Lightstone, author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The Trump administration's Peace to Prosperity vision for the Middle East was unveiled on January 28, 2020. As senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, you were able to see a lot of behind-the-scenes action. What was your specific involvement, and what was significant about this time? So, uh, you know, almost everything is significant when you have a chance to work for the United States of America, and even small actions can have large ramifications and reverberations. And so when I was hired by Ambassador David Friedman, who inarguably was the most influential U.S. ambassador of my lifetime to be his chief of staff, I had the opportunity to come out and to work on the day-to-day nitty-gritty that the U.S. Embassy works uh, in relation to our number one ally in the region, the state of Israel. And that's everywhere from uh, economic relations, intelligence relations, defense relations, uh, high-level visits, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I spent most of my time trying to keep the ambassador's schedule free so he can accomplish the historic game-changing accomplishments that he did, such as uh, working with the president to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, opening up our, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, opening up the ambassador's home in the capital of Israel, recognizing the Golan uh, as sovereign Israeli territory, and all of those issues which required a unique and personal relationship in between the ambassador, the president of the United States of America, and Jared Kushner. And so while he was busy uh, doing those game-changing activities, it was my job to make sure that the day-to-day interactions in between the United States of America and the state of Israel were not only run smoothly, but they were elevated. And I'm very pleased to tell you, over the four years that we were there, there's not a single place where we interact with Israel that was not vastly improved uh, over those four years. And then, and I apologize for the long-winded answer, and then, in the midst of COVID, in 2020, the summer of 2020, uh, Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo and Avi Berkowitz uh, unveiled the Abraham Accords, which was the normalization between the United States uh, well, the United States brokered the normalization between the United Arab Emirates, the state of Israel, and four other countries added from that. And when that momentum started with peace in the Middle East, Jared asked me to join him as a special envoy for, it's called economic normalization. But my job was essentially to take the piece of papers that were signed and to create peace in between people. And for 123 days, I had uh, the opportunity in my lifetime to be able to run around and to do that. You were tasked with the most complex component of the Abraham Accords, which was turning them into practical action. What was this like, and did the pandemic have any kind of effect on the process? So, (laughs) great question. Uh, On August 13, 2020, at 10 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, President Trump hosted a conversation with the president, or the Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the United Arab Emirates, and then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, and they agreed that they were going to forge peace in between the United Arab Emirates and the State of Israel. That was a fantastic statement and a meaningful phone call. Now the question is, how does that happen? It's in the middle of COVID. There are no visas. There are very few commercial flights. Um, 
the people of the Emirates and Israel don't know each other. And the question is, how could we put, as they say, meat on the bones to demonstrate that this is a real peace in order to be able to attract other countries to try to join what ultimately was not the Abraham Accord, but the Abraham Accords. And when Jared and Avi and Miguel and others who were in charge of managing this relationship turned to me as I was the guy based in Israel and said, we have to have a physical manifestation of the success of these accords, and we have to have them tomorrow. So I got on a flight immediately back from Washington, D.C., landed in Israel, and we began to plan how could we get the leaders of Israel together with the leaders of the Emirates to be able to, to create some facts on the ground for what this looks like. And the, to me, the most moving picture of the year 2020 uh, was the El Al, which is the national carrier of the state of Israel, that plane leaving Israel, flying over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, landing in Abu Dhabi, the capital of the United Arab Emirates, with an Israeli delegation, an American delegation, being greeted by a senior Emirati delegation. And that moment, that picture, and if you, if you haven't Googled it, you should, it's a picture of Emiratis dressed in the traditional kanduras, which is the traditional attire of the Emiratis, waving at the El Al plane as it lands, which the El Al is, is known as the uh, symbol of the state of Israel. And that was something that nobody in 2019 could have ever guessed would have happened. And that set in motion the Kingdom of Bahrain to join the Accords just two weeks later, Sudan two weeks after that, Kosovo one week after that, and Morocco three weeks after that, leading to five peace and normalization agreements with the state of Israel in 123 days, which is far more than it ever happened uh, in the uh, in the state of Israel prior. What was the significance of the signing of the Israel-Morocco normalization agreement? Well, the, the greatest significance of that is Morocco is a country with 40 million people. King Mohammed VI is a direct descendant of Mohammed the Prophet. Uh, his portfolio in the Arab League is that of Jerusalem. And, uh, and less known, but it should be better known, the Kingdom of Morocco has been a hospitable host to the Jewish people since the destruction of the First Temple uh, back uh, in three or 400 before the Common Era. Uh, there's been a deep link in between the Kingdom of Morocco and the Jewish people for literally centuries that was severed uh, due to some terrible radical Islamic propaganda and, and some failed leadership uh, in the Kingdom of Morocco. And by re-normalizing uh, these relationships, this came back to the natural sitting point where Morocco, which was the first country to recognize the United States of America when we were founded as a country, uh, it, it's a moral country, it's a uh, country that shares values to go ahead and to re-normalize with Israel was a complete and total game-changer, not just for the Middle East, but for the North Africa region as well. You were instrumental in facilitating the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, as well as its successful merger with the Jerusalem Consulate. What does this mean for Jerusalem, and why was this such a great accomplishment? So in order to understand what this means for Jerusalem, the State of Israel, and the United States of America we have to understand the following thing. Israel was founded on May 14, 1948, uh, and the United States of America, the State Department specifically, recommended against 
the recognition of the United States of America as Israel as a state. Harry Truman went against all of his advisors and recognized Israel as a Jewish state in the homeland of the Jewish people. That was a gutsy decision by President Truman. However, from Harry Truman until President Trump, each successive president chose not to do what I would consider the right thing to do, which was to recognize that Israel has its own sovereign right to choose its own capital. And for 69 years, the United States of America recognized Israel, supported Israel, but had daylight in between us and Israel, saying that, look, you're Israel, you do not have the right to choose your own capital, you do not have the right to choose your own borders, you do not have the right inherent that other countries have, so therefore we'll be close with you, but we won't be too close with you. And what typifies that is, I hope most of your listeners have heard of Menachem Begin, who was the first conservative prime minister of Israel. He was elected in the late 70s. When he went to go meet with Margaret Thatcher, the iconic conservative prime minister of the United Kingdom of of England, and when he was on his way to meet with her the first time, uh, he was asked by the press, are you going to ask Margaret Thatcher to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? And he looks at the press and says, I suppose I will if she asks me to recognize London as the capital of the United Kingdom. And he continues, you see, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel thousands of years before anybody heard of the United Kingdom or the city of London. We don't need anybody, says Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel. We don't need anybody to tell us where our capital is. The question is, what is morally missing from countries to recognize that we have the same choice as any other country to determine where our capital was. And that was a very poignant statement. And when President Trump on December 6, 2017, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he didn't do that for Israel. Israel knew where its capital was. He did it for the United States of America. We, at that moment, became the superpower that we always should have been because we didn't allow other countries and other entities to veto our own foreign policy. You see, in 1995, there was a Jerusalem Embassy Act passed by Congress in broad bipartisan uh, agreement. I mean, broad bipartisan agreement, and which stated that the president must recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and the president must move our embassy to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And every president from 1995 up until President Trump refused to follow both of those laws and signed a national security waiver. When President Trump did not sign the waiver, and he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and began the movement and ultimately opened the embassy in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. That was for the United States, that we uh, we recognized our own power, our own legitimacy, our own values, and that was a critical moment uh, in all of U.S. history. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing Arya Lightstone, author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. You played a critical role in advancing bilateral U.S.-Israel relations with a focus on 5G implementation, infrastructure expansion, and economic development. What else can you tell us about this? So what's important to know is that our relationship with Israel is not just about Iran. And it's not just about the Palestinians, and it's not just about values and commonality. When you look at the U.S.-Israel relationship, we have to understand that Israel is a technological and economic superpower. But we're not the only ones who have recognized that. The Chinese 
had enormous investments and enormous inroads into Israel, where they would welcome Israelis to come to China with far less arduous visa requirements than we have for Israelis who want to come to the United States of America. And I'm pleased to tell you that if, when we walked in in 2017, the movement of Chinese investments into Israel and the favorability metric of how China was perceived by the Israeli technological, military, and intelligence communities was extremely high. At the end of our time in January of 2021, I'm pleased to tell you that Israel began to recognize China for the threat that it is and the dangers that it poses. And that means that when we have a relationship with Israel or any other fantastic technological superpower, although that's really Israel, uh, it's our job to make sure that we as the United States of America benefit from all of the investments and commitments that we get from that country. And that's what I spent every waking hour working on, making sure that what the United States gives to Israel is incredibly important. But what the United States of America should get from Israel is equally important. It is in America's interest to support this relationship, but we have to follow through on that. In your book, you offer a glimpse into the day-to-day activities of an embassy. What are the main takeaways of this? The main takeaways of this is that these are countries that have relationships, but at the end of the day, all relationships are based upon people. And we would have U.S. citizens who are in Israel, and and they would lose their wallet. Uh, A loved one would pass away. And how we treat them with what compassion and what outreach uh, demonstrates the true power of the United States of America. And at the same time, when we have a conversation with the Israelis about the Chinese who are building yet another power plant, and we're able to have a conversation and say, yes, it is cheaper, and yes, they might be able to do it faster, but it's not in your national security interest. Those are things that happen because people can sit with people through a buildup of trust and respect and appreciation, and we're able to accomplish very meaningful things. I'll I'll give you one sort of interesting example of that. When COVID uh, was first on on the scene, and we had people around the world, we had Americans around the world in, in countless countries who all wanted to get back to America, there were also Israelis in countless countries. Some of the countries that the Israelis were in, they weren't even legally allowed to be in based upon diplomatic status. And we received a phone call from the Israelis saying, can you help us repatriate our citizens? And this would have, in normal times, would have required memos and approvals and all of these things. The prime minister called my boss, David Friedman. David Friedman called the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. And Mike Pompeo answered, yes, we'll help, because that's what friends do. And during those moments of COVID, we saw enormous heroism in between our countries. And that actually was the, 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 the tip of the iceberg for how the Abraham Accords came about. It, the leadership of these countries said, we want to work on the future and not be subjugated to the past. And if, if COVID taught us anything, it, it was certainly humbling to enable us to sort of think about what we really wanted and what was really important. What must the Biden administration do to advance America's interest abroad? Uh, I can speak to the Middle East very specifically. <laughs> to me, it's easy. We have friends. Be good friends with our friends. We've got enemies. Let them know that there are enemies. And what I mean by that is we have this equivocation with Iran. There is no doubt that Iran has malign intentions. Iran continues to have malign intentions. 
And no matter what we do with Iran in their current format, they are not going to be here in order to, quote, join the community of nations. <laughs> Secretary Pompeo outlined 12 concrete steps that Iran could take in order to rejoin the 21st century economy. They have not taken any of them. And yet the Biden administration has run back and begged them to come back to the negotiating table. When we act with leverage, when we act as a superpower, let Iran beg us to come back to the negotiating table. At the same time, we need to go ahead and demonstrate to our allies, the UAE, to Bahrain, to Saudi, and certainly to Israel, that we will stand with them, we will invest with them, and we will expand with them. So President Biden, just three things off the top of my head, he could stand and say, look, we're going to adopt President Trump's policy vis-a-vis Iran. It was working. It will continue to work. And we will wait for Iran to come to us after they fulfill these 12 qualifications. He's not likely to do that, but that would be in America's best interest if he did that. Number two is he will welcome all of the ambassadors from the Abraham Accord countries to the next State of the Union. He'll have them sit in the gallery. And when he comes to leaders who have chosen to make peace instead of war, he will single out each one of these countries. And there will be a round of applause by every Democrat and every Republican and every independent in that chamber because peace should be applauded whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat, whether it happens under Trump, whether it happens under Biden. And the third and the final piece that we should be extremely clear about, we should go to our allies and say there's a deep competition for technological supremacy. You're either with the United States of America and the forces for good or you're with China. Make a decision which way you want to be. And the more clear we are in terms of what our expectations are and what our desires are, the other countries in the region and throughout the world will choose, and 9 out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, they will choose the United States of America when we conduct ourselves with clarity and vision. We now have a paradigm for a forward-looking Middle East policy that ultimately benefits the United States. What do we need to do to maintain this accomplishment? Also, keep Iran in the category of the enemies. And make sure that they know what it takes for them to become the good guys eventually, because they will want that. They, they want to join the community of nations. They're just not capable of doing it in their current construct. But number two is, is it shouldn't have taken 18 months for the president to praise the Abraham Accords. It shouldn't have taken 18 months for him to fly directly from Israel to another Arab Muslim country. There needs to be an active investment, not just by the president, but certainly as he conducts foreign policy, specifically by the president, but by both members of con- both bodies of Congress and both parties, Republicans and Democrats and independents, to say, we now have the blueprint for peace in the Middle East. Let's double and triple down on it. Every dollar that we spend trying to expand peace in between the countries who have already chosen to do so, we're going to get back by troops and young men or young women that will never have to put in the Middle East because the Middle East will be different than the Middle East that I grew up in. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this interview. Lauren, thank you so much for continuing to educate uh, our young people who are our leaders, not just of tomorrow, but really of today. Our guest has been Arya Lightstone, author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.